We are live with the Brigino Baseball Clubhouse Curated Conversation Podcast from an undisclosed location in the city of New York. Tonight's book, Doc, Donnie, the Kid, and Billy Brawl, How the 1985 Mets and Yankees Fought for New York's Baseball Soul. The publisher, University of Nebraska Press. The author, Chris Donnelly. Chris, thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Jake. It's great to be here. Oh, it's my pleasure. <laughs> And for those of you listening who may not know, Chris is the author of two prior books, How the Yankees Explain New York and Baseball's Greatest Series, Yankees, Mariners, and the 1995 Matchup that Changed History. And we will get to him later, but we have a special roundtable guest tonight. Usually we have more than one guest, uh, but tonight's guest uh, can handle, is the equivalent of about seven guests. So tonight's guest is a good friend and one of the souls of New York, Tony Danera, the author of a very funny memoir called Joining Arnold, Rise of the Girly Man. So, and we will get to Tony in a bit. Thank you. Nice to be here. Uh, thank you, Tony. Uh, and before we get going uh, with the discussion, I just want to also thank our sponsors. Uh, the podcast is sponsored by Sauce Pizzeria and St. Mark's Wine and Liquor. Uh, both, both of those uh, terrific businesses are located in uh, Greenwich Village, the East Village, Lower Manhattan. So please, when you're in the area, please partake of their great pizza and beverage options. Uh, so just to get us going, Chris, uh, if you could just let us know, how did this book come about? Sure. So uh, I was working on my first book, which you mentioned, which was about the, the 95 Division Series. And as part of that, I was researching the, the Yankees and the Mariners from 1977 onward when the Mariners came in. And as I was looking through that time period, especially in the 80s, um, I always knew how bad the Yankees were in the 80s, but it was startling to see how, how the downfall occurred and how they ended up being the worst team in the American League by 1990. And as I was researching that, I realized that as the Yankees were, were falling down, the Mets were going in the complete opposite direction and almost at the same at the same pace in the same time. And so originally I had thought about writing a, a, a much more comprehensive book about the Yankees and Mets in the 1980s. Um, but I realized that could be a 2,000-page book just given everything that happened in the decade. So I thought, all right, where's the moment where they meet going in different directions? And it just so happened uh, for Symmetry in 1985. Uh, they had nearly identical records, the Mets 98-64, Yankees 97-64, both eliminated on the second to last day of the season. It was really the first time that uh, a Subway series was talked about in New York since the Mets came to town. And in, even with all that, the, the, what happened off the field with both teams, with especially the Yankees, I just thought that 85 would be the perfect season to sort of zero in on. Well, you did a wonderful job. It's, Thank you. Uh, uh, unfortunately, I'm a Mets fan, and <laughs> it, uh, it brought back a, a flood of memories to me uh, from that time. I, I was 25 at that time. You were, you were barely out of diapers, uh, which makes the book even more of, of an achievement that you didn't live through this. You Thank know? you. Uh, Tony and I lived through this. Uh, and I just, uh, one more question in general, and then mm -hmm. we'll kind of get into things. Uh, You've written three books. All authors would understand this. 
some readers may, but certainly any author would understand this. There are many things that are out of control, out of the control of an author. Uh, I'm sure uh, it's you know uh, authors wish it was were, wish it were otherwise, but that's just the way it is. Uh, including the, the covers usually, which by the way this has a great cover too. Thank you. Uh, but many things are out of the control of the author, but mm -hmm. many things are in the control of the author. And just a question, I found it interesting how you opened the book. So I just want to uh, ask, why did you open this book uh, with Gary Carter? Uh, I thought that the Gary Carter trade is really, it's sort of the unofficial moment that New York becomes a Mets town. Uh, I mean, you could look at other points in the 85 season, and certainly you could say 1986 when the Mets win the championship. But I really thought that was the moment when it all sort of happened because uh, it's not just the fact that the Mets are now trading for the greatest catcher in the game or, if you want to argue, maybe the second greatest catcher in the game. But this wasn't just a trade to make the Mets a better team. This was the trade to make them the team in the National League. The Mets were sending a message. This wasn't about improving. This was about, no, we are the team to be in 1985 and moving forward. And not just that, but it, it was they made it a week after the Yankees had traded for Ricky Henderson. And it's incredible how that trade is really not remembered at all. I mean, we're talking about one of the greatest players to ever play baseball. And a week after the Yankees make this huge deal, the Mets swoop in, uh, essentially steal Carter from the Expos, because the Expos did not get that much in return for him, uh, you know, now that we can analyze the trade 35-plus years later. And I just thought, okay... This is where the story needs to start, even though it, it can start before then with how bad the Mets were and, and how good the Yankees were, and I go into that in the, in the following chapters. But the Carter trade is really when it all starts to happen, and the Mets of the late 80s and the Yankees of the late 80s, uh, as we know them, uh, start to happen. Yeah, I thought it was a very interesting way to open the book, and in an unexpected way. I, I, he was always one of my uh, all-time favorite players. But I just, you caught me by surprise instantly, which drew me in. Maybe that was the plan. Uh, but I was just surprised that that's how this book opened, you know. Uh, and he actually is one of the names that in the book, or at, towards the end of the book, actually, you have, you write, the following people were interviewed exclusively for this book and their cooperation and stories are much appreciated. And then you have a full paragraph, I'm not going to read all the mm -hmm. names, but it's many, many names. And he's one of them. And uh, as I was going through the names, I couldn't help but notice quite a few of them have since passed away. And uh, were there any of these names, certain whoever passed away or whoever still alive, uh, that surprised you one way or another when you spoke to them for the book? Um, I don't. I wouldn't say necessarily surprised. Uh, I would say some were uh, more memorable than others. Wally Backman, for example, was just a great interview to have. He's a very straightforward guy. He, he doesn't BS you, so he was a lot of fun. Uh, I really enjoyed talking to Don Baylor, uh, who unfortunately is is one of the guys I interviewed who has since passed away, because you could just tell talking to him. You could just tell how much he knew about baseball and how smart of a guy he was and how kind of a person he was. It was really fascinating to hear his background and some of the racism that he'd deal with growing up in the 60s and the 70s. Um, and, 
you think of Don Baylor, for those, those of us who know baseball and baseball history, here's the guy who, who set the hit-by-pitch record, um, and you think of him as this big, tough, intimidating guy, and in some ways he was, but he was also kind of a teddy bear. I mean, he, he did a lot of charity work, and he was sort of the first guy in the team to welcome new people in. And I think some people think that baseball is, you, you go up to the plate, you swing, <laughs> you get on the mound, you throw, and it's so much more difficult than that and you have to know so much more than that and and talking to him really made me understand just how much you need to know about the game to play it play it well and eventually manage it as he did and you don't have to answer this question if you don't want to but i, I believe you wrote about joe cowley you could not <laughs> find joe nope uh, which is uh somewhat ironic uh were there any other folks who you tried to reach who you just could not? Because it seems like you reached a ton of people. I reached a lot. Um, I, some of the, uh, I guess you would call maybe the bigger names for that season, didn't agree to it. Uh, I'd never heard back from Dwight Gooden. I reached out to his agent multiple times. Um, George Foster was somebody who I thought was going to, to call me and never did. And it's, it's not surprising, uh, and I certainly don't blame him, but I, I did not hear from Ed Whitson. Which, given what happened to him in New York, is completely understandable. And my understanding is that he does not talk about his time with the Yankees, or he does it on really rare occasions. I think he's only done it once or twice in the last 35 years. He does not talk about Billy Martin at all. So um, I wish I could have talked to those guys, but I certainly understand, especially in Ed Whitson's case, why they didn't want to. Right. Okay, and now I want to read one paragraph that you wrote. Then we'll get into. Then I want you to get your reaction to that, and then we're going to bring Tony in because it's it's going to take us into, uh, in some ways, the heart of, of part of the story. Anyway, uh, you wrote this in the book. To understand the difference between the Yankees and Mets during the course of the 1980s, is to understand the difference in ownership. Nelson Doubleday called in Frank Cashin because he wanted his team to get better. He knew that meant leaving Cashin alone, for the most part, to make the trades and obtain the talent he felt would give the Mets a chance to contend. The New York Yankees owner, George Steinbrenner, did no such thing in every way possible. <laughs> uh, and I just want you to, uh, just your thoughts about that, and then I want to get Tony's thoughts as someone who knew the Yankee, as a fan, who was both a Yankee and Met fan in different ways, and a true New Yorker at that time. So he understood Steinbrenner, what Steinbrenner met at that time. I think a lot of people, well, I don't want to say any more right now, but I want to get your thoughts on it. Yeah, I mean, it's, the Mets' ownership was rarely heard. You knew they were there, obviously, but they were rarely heard. They had Frank Cashin, and Frank Cashin had his team of people and they relied and trusted him to make the right personnel decisions uh, and largely stayed away from what was going on with the team. Um, and with George Steinbrenner, that, that never happened, ever, <laughs> uh, in any of his years as an owner, although to some degree it lessened when he came back from his banishment slash suspension in the 90s. But uh, George was involved in everything. And George was just one of those guys who, who didn't know what he didn't know. And he wasn't a baseball guy. He, he just wasn't. Um, George is the guy who comments 
on a story, you know, uh, on a story posted on the on the web about uh, sports. You know, he's the guy writing the comments at the bottom about how they all stink and trade them all and all. That. And it just he he didn't rely on his baseball people. He had smart people around him, and he didn't rely on them. And one example, and this is in 1985, but in the early 80s. There's, there was a guy named John Mayberry, who, if you know baseball history, you know him. He was a really good power hitter in the 70s, but by the early 80s, his career was essentially done. But Steinbrenner sees him at two home runs in a game and says, this is the guy. This is the guy that's going to help us. And despite everybody saying not to, he trades for him. Mayberry comes to the Yankees. He hits, I believe, 209 with them, and his career is over. And that's just one of, I mean, example after example of what the Yankees did in the 80s of of trading this young talent that George never wanted to wait to see blossom for these over-the-hill, overvalued players that came to New York and, and struggled. And look, it's no coincidence that when Steinbrenner gets banished in 90 and it's gone for three years, the Yankees rebuild themselves. It, it's just what they needed at the time. And the, the two polar opposite ownerships is why we had the kind of baseball we had in New York in the late 80s. Does any of this come back to you, Tony? It certainly does. Uh, I remember 1985 very well, and uh, I, I went to Shea Stadium a few times that year. I watched a lot of Yankee games that year, and everything uh, he just said uh, just brought back a lot of memories, and, and that's how I remember it. And there were some things I, I had forgotten about and when he mentioned them, it all came back to me also. Um, uh, you know, uh, that, that's basically the way it was. The Yankees were uh, uh, floundering in the early 90s. The Mets were still good. I remember back in 1990 when I moved to Los Angeles, Bud Harrison was managing the Mets, and they had a good year that year. And, and then from that point on, they started to die off. It got worse and worse. They brought in Vince Coleman and Bobby Bonilla, and it was just embarrassing and just awful throwing firecrackers at fans and, and all this other stuff. And, and the Yankees also uh, were really going downhill. But, by, but um, when I was living in L.A., but uh, by, by 85, uh, both teams were really, really competitive and they were fun to watch. And before we uh, started the program, I, I was saying uh, to our, our author tonight that um, you know, you were only four years old in 1985. For you to remember all this and to know all this and to write a book this good is very impressive. Because I was 23 years old then, and I was all in in 1985, and there's no way I could write a book this good. <laughs> Thank you. So reading this book yeah. made me feel like 23 years old again. Yeah, it was that, just fantastic. That, well, that's about Thank it. You. That's about, you can't get a better compliment <laughs> than that. Thank you. And it's yeah. actually interesting, something that you said, uh, Tony, that was interesting, which plays off of this paragraph that I read when you then talked about how the Mets kind of went downhill after that, and the Yankees went, I guess you could say, uphill when Steinbrenner was banished, what people forget, I think, are, are two things. One from each team. One, in, people have this vision of Steinbrenner, and you, you write about it later in the book, of like, oh, if only Steinbrenner were around, things would be better now. And uh, they forget how bad this guy was. Likewise, the Mets forgot, Met fans forget about, I think they remember Frank Cashin certainly and what he meant, but they forget that it was really Nelson Doubleday, the other owner, once Fred Wilpon gets involved, you have the same 
in a different way, but you have the Mets tanking from that point forward, basically. And it's really never changed. Yeah. Once Nelson Doubleday was out of the picture, uh, so it just brought back a, a lot to me, and it was interesting about this. Uh, Nelson Doubleday is kind of a, for, a very forgotten figure in Mets, in that era of the Mets, because it's so, I, I guess it's fair to say, how much Wilpon is despised by Mets fans. They forget that Doubleday, it was really the two of them, but Doubleday was really the lead guy who got out of the way to let Frank Cashin do his thing. Yeah, and I think I think because he got out of the way, it's part of why he's not necessarily remembered. And I think it's also the the nature of that team, right? That crazy hard partying, very much New York City mid '80s team, that he doesn't get the recognition that he necessarily deserves. And a lot of it goes to Frank Cashin and David Johnson, and deservedly so. Um, but a lot of the things that made uh, what made the Mets so great and so unique in 85 and 86 end up being their downfall later on in the 80s. And to your point about George, it's, it's I mean, I, I don't know if there's anybody in the history of any sport, at least in this country, who has undergone uh, the kind of resurrection that his reputation has. This offseason... When, the, when Machado and Harper were free agents and you go on Twitter and, or social media and you see Yankee fans going, if only George were alive, we would have signed these two guys. That was part of the problem in the 80s is that George was there signing guys that probably shouldn't have been on the team. Um, and people forget about that. They forget about some of the really, truly awful decisions he made in the 80s. I um, and look, the success of the 90s washes away a lot of that. And I also think people underestimate just how much Seinfeld had a role in that because it, it humanized George in a way that I don't think people saw him before. Made him seem funny, even though it wasn't really him. It made him seem funny, <laughs> made him seem like he could get the joke. Right. Um, it's, it is really remarkable to think, if you were alive in 1990 when George was, was banished, later suspended, and moved to a suspension, if you had told people that, yeah, but when, when George dies at 20 years, people are going to revere him and you know St. George almost at that point nobody would have believed that oh there's and I'm sure some people listening to this will get upset at me but there's a whole uh, there's this whole uh, kind of this campaign in effect that he should be in the Hall of Fame how could Steinbrenner not be in the Hall of Fame you hear I, I, I mean it, it makes me laugh in a way <laughs> and it may happen actually Can I uh, Tony uh, on a personal note you mentioned Nelson Doubleday earlier my mother worked for Doubleday Publishing when she was 15 years old. Nelson Doubleday hired my mother when she was 15 years old. She, he knew she was underage, but she needed a job, and he took a chance on her. And she told me many years later, that meant a lot to her. She really needed that. And, and I appreciated that. That's interesting. And, and, for, and with George Steinbrenner, I went to Yankee Stadium in 1972 on back day. Uh, this was when CBS owned the Yankees. And my father had to work that day, so he gave the tickets to our neighbor, uh, Richie Florio, he, who lived in our building, and Richie took me to the game. I was 10 years old. Richie was about 18 and 19. <laughs> and after the game, as we're on the subway platform on the L, waiting to go back to Pelham Parkway, where I was from, uh, a gang of kids uh, took my bag. And it was very upsetting to me. You know, I had to hand it over, or else we were outnumbered. It was like five kids, and it was just mm -hmm. me. It was a gang. He was old. He's like, These were teenagers. These were older kids. It was a gang. And I started crying. It was very upsetting. 
and they felt bad for me, they gave me the bat back. And so Richie says to me, listen, don't tell your mother this happened, she won't let you come back here again. Well, I wanted to go back to Yankee Stadium again, so the next year I went with my father on bat day in 73, and, uh, and it was the first year George Steinbrenner owned the team. And we noticed right away that it was much safer outside Yankee Stadium in 1973 as opposed to 72. There was more of a police presence. It seemed safer. And that's the first thing George Steinbrenner did. He says, as soon as I own the Yankees, I'm going to make Yankee Stadium as safe as possible for the fans to come here. Because it was a very rough neighborhood back then. And that's the first thing I, I remember about George Steinbrenner. Well, interesting. I just want to uh, read one story from the book about Steinbrenner. Sure. Just, I really enjoyed this story. Uh, hopefully nobody gets offended by the language, but so be it. Uh, so this is in Chris's book. Uh, Steinbrenner's act was mostly ignored as long as the Yankees were winning. But that began to change drastically following the team's loss in the 1981 World Series. In fact, the dissent could probably be pinpointed as having come before the World Series. In the division series against the Milwaukee Brewers, the Yankees won the first two games of the best of five series, only to lose the next two. An irate Steinbrenner stormed into the Yankees clubhouse, berating the team's performance. Fuck you, you fat son of a bitch, shouted Yankees catcher Rick Cerrone. You never played the game. You don't know what you were talking about. I remember that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that was a different time uh, in many yeah. ways. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I just love that. Uh, <laughs> as a matter of fact, there's a, uh, we, don't, we won't get into it, but there's a, 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 a great <clears throat> chapter in this book. The title of the chapter is, I'm Going to Kill You. And uh, the, the book is fantastic, but it's worth it just for that one chapter alone, the I'm Going to Kill You. So to anyone who gets the book, um, Maybe read that chapter first or last or whatever you want to do, but it, it's a great chapter. Uh, you can talk a little bit about it if you want to, uh, or was it as much fun to write that chapter for you as it was to read it for me? Yeah, so, so that, without going into too much detail, I mean, that chapter, part of that chapter is about what, are, what is, to me, by far the strangest eight or not, ten days in the history of the New York Yankees uh, where Billy basically goes, I mean, just falls apart, goes to pieces. Billy Martin. Billy Martin, yeah, sorry. Go, I mean, it, it was game after game after game. Something, wasn't just the Yankees that were losing. Something truly bizarre happened in every single game. And then the, I'm going to kill you references is, <laughs> is, is to something Billy says in his second fight of the weekend. In, in Baltimore, the Yankees are in Baltimore, and Billy ends up fighting one of his own pitchers um, and says, I'm, I'm going to kill you. And it was, it was kind of incredible to, to write. And there's like four or five pages in the book about that one fight, which is just kind of remarkable. It's remarkable because so many people witnessed it. And this is, it's not something that could happen today just with social media and cell phones and everything. I mean, these, these fights happen in full view of the traveling press, the players, the... I mean, the fight was started because of a fan. And, and full details, and I mean, it's just, it's incredible. I have, I've read that multiple times because, I mean, it's unfortunate that the fight happened, but there's something about that moment that just makes me think, this is just so beyond ridiculous. 
that this actually happened. Um, and that, it, it, I mean, that one incident alone could probably be the subject of its own book. But that was just one of, of a million incidents that happened with the Yankees in 1985. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great chapter. And Tony, not talking about that, but from your own stories, uh, as crazy as that was, with the manager of the Yankees fighting one of his own players, and as Chris said, it went on for four or five pages in the book, uh, which the detail is terrific. Uh, do you have any memories of when you went to a ballpark, just maybe something uh, from that era of, it could it be Shea or Yankee, of something that uh, was a little wacky in its own way? Very good. Um, my sister was living in Arlington, Texas in 1987. And uh, I went to a Yankees-Rangers game that night. Uh, it was during the summer. That was the week uh, when uh, Don Mattingly hit the eight home runs in eight games in a row. And I went to the eighth game where he hit the last home run in that streak. The next night, he didn't hit a home run, but I was there that night when he hit the eighth home run. And uh, I was invited to the game by friends of ours who had a, a private box. And so before the game, I'm walking towards the box, you know, and I walk past this one box, private box, and Billy Martin is in there. And I stop dead in my tracks and says, hey, Billy Martin. And he sees me, he comes out, he starts talking to me, he shakes my hand and says, hey, Billy, how you doing? I'm from New York, I'm visiting family down here, I'm a Yankee fan, and I had a really nice conversation with him. Uh, he was terrific, he, he looked great. He was in a good space at that time because he wasn't managing, he was broadcasting for the Yankees. So he was in pretty good shape then, and, and, you know, and that was a different time for him, but when he was managing, it was a totally different thing. He was a terrific field general, a terrific, strategist, because he learned under uh, Casey Stengel, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Bi uh, Casey uh, was, Billy was Casey's boy, as he was known back then, but Billy had problems with alcohol, and, and it just set him off, and he wasn't in control of himself in the fight with Ed Whitson, I remember that, it was just awful, and that, that was the difference, you know, uh, I liked Billy personally, but Billy had a lot of trouble, and, uh, and, 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 these stories were expected. This had been going on when he was a player. Right. And Billy Martin was his own worst enemy. Yeah. Well, everybody has their own demons in different ways, and Billy sure. just could never really get over it. Right. And uh, I felt bad for him. He was, he was, oh, he was a terrific baseball guy. Oh, yeah. It's, I mean, I don't, I don't you, you couldn't argue with, about him being a great manager. The, the, the most you could really say in, in a negative way is that maybe he Burns through his welcome, or burns through pitching staffs, but as far as winning, taking, uh, and you, you talk about it quite a bit in the book, uh, turning around teams quickly. Uh, I don't know if there was anyone else in the history of baseball, well certainly nobody who managed so many teams like that. And, and it happened everywhere he went, and as I write in the book, I mean, Billy's life was about patterns, and the pattern was he would come into this a bad team, and immediately, I mean, almost, not almost, immediately he would turn it around and make it a good, successful either playoff team or, in the case of when he was the Rangers manager, uh, better than they had ever been. But with that success then came the drinking and the fighting. And, and the quick and, firings. And the quick firings. Right. And, and it happened 
I mean, it's not an exaggeration. It happened literally everywhere he went, every managerial job he had, from Minnesota to Detroit to Texas to the Yankees to Oakland, and then back to the Yankees the, the, the other four or five times. It happened everywhere. There's no doubting that he was a genius at baseball. Um, but, but, yeah, I mean, Billy was an alcoholic. And, look, in, in today's day and age, he would have gone to rehab and, and, and probably would have gotten the treatment that he needed. Um, but it, it didn't happen. And the most remarkable, maybe the most remarkable thing of all, he was going to come back and manage the Yankees a sixth time in, right. in 1990. Yeah. Right. He was already telling people like Buck Showalter, I'm coming back. George is going to fire Bucky and bring me back. Be ready in 1990. And it would have happened if he hadn't died in the car crash. Right. Yeah, it, it, very interesting. Uh, I mean, there's been, and we were discussing it before, the Bill Pennington book on Billy Martin, which is fantastic, and, and other books. And, uh, he was worthy of an entire book, but you really, he, he really kind of goes through this book throughout, uh, and you have some terrific stories about it. And now I'm going to, I want to ask a question to both of you guys uh, that doesn't have an answer, uh, so answer it as you, as you, you may. Uh, but I would get asked a lot, when I, especially when I had the clubhouse uh, brick and mortar location, Oh, is New York? Is it a is New York a National League town, a Met town, or a Yankee town? It's a Met town or a Yankee town, and I have my own thoughts on that, which I'll keep quiet for now. But one of the things that you bring out in the book in 1985, uh, which is really the crux of this book, the the Mets set at that time the all-time New York baseball attendance record of 2.7 million. The following year, in 1986, the Mets drew 2.76 million, breaking their own record, breaking New York baseball record. 1987, the Mets become the first team in New York history, sports history, to draw over 3 million fans. Um, so obviously it's a different time now. Uh, but if somebody, let's say, were to ask you, is New York a Met town or a Yankee town? I, I, the reason I'm asking that is I think people would be shocked to know that the Mets were setting attendance yeah. records at any time. So, do you have a, a, an answer? Or you, you may not, but if you do, is it a Met or a Yankee town? I think I think the answer is it's fluid. I think it, it was a Yankees. I don't think it was ever truly a Mets town. Even in '69, they won the championship. There was a lot of excitement, but it wasn't prolonged because the Mets didn't really sustain that success. Even in 73 when they made the playoffs, they were not a great team. I, I, they eked right. in, I think, at 82 and 79. or I mean, it wasn't right. a, um, And then after that, there wasn't much success afterwards. So really, 85 is when New York really truly is a Mets town for the first time. That lasts up until about 1991, to the point you were making earlier. Um, I think in the early 90s, it was a nobody town because both teams were terrible. Um, and then it, it shifts to being Yankee Town in the late 90s because of the dynasty. I don't know if it's ever truly gone back to the Mets since. I think the Mets came really close in, in the mid-aughts uh, when they reached the NLCS in 06. But then they had the collapse in 07 and 08. And I think rather than being a Mets town, it was more of a, you know, here we 
you know, it's, it's when my wife stopped washing them right in 06 because she's just like, I can't take this anymore. I can't take this heartbreak. Smart, smart. Person. <laughs> yeah. And then I, I think I think it's kind of the same thing this decade. I think the Mets had an opportunity to sort of reclaim the town while the Yankees were quote unquote rebuilding, and it just didn't quite happen. Um, and now we are where we are. Uh, I do think one thing though is that there's a big difference between when it's a Yankees town and a Mets town in that people hate Yankee fans. <laughs> they, they hate Yankee fans, and they and, and I am a Yankee fan, by the way. So they hate Yankee fans, and they hate the Yankees. I don't think they feel the same way about Mets fans and the Mets. And so when the Mets are good and when they're winning, I think there's a different energy about those teams than there are when, there's, when it's the Yankees. I don't think when the Mets are winning, people are necessarily saying, God, just, just beat the Mets. They're definitely saying that when it's, when it's the Yankees, even when it's a team like this one where they're pretty much likable guys. So. Well, Steinbrenner was certainly saying beat the Mets uh, in spring training onward. Uh, yes, uh, yeah. But I, you're right. Tony? From my knowledge, uh, it was always said that it was a National League town because you had the two teams, the Brooklyn Dodgers and the New York Giants, and they had that great history with the New York Giants. It's John McGraw and then Christy Mathewson and later on Willie Mays and, of course, the, the shot heard around the world with Bobby Thompson, which my father enjoyed watching when he was 12 years old. And, and of course, you had the great Brooklyn Dodger teams, Pee Wee Reese, Jackie Robinson, Gil Hodges, who should be in the Hall of Fame. That's a personal uh, note there. Uh, hopefully that'll happen Feel in my Feel free lifetime. to endorse it. Right. Yeah. And, um, and even though the Yankees brought in Babe Ruth in 1920 and they took over the polo grounds, which they shared with the Giants, and they were forced to have to build their own stadium uh, over there in the Bronx, um, you know, when, when, when the Dodgers and Giants moved to California in 1958, they were still saying, we need a team and we need a National League team in New York. We need, this is a National League town even though the Yankees were winning championships every year. So of course they brought the Mets in, and then, it, then uh, even though the Mets were bad, it brought in the old Giants and Dodger fans to Shea Stadium. They were filling Shea Stadium even though the Mets were a bad team. So there's a good argument that New York was always a National League town, even though the Yankees were very good most of those years, uh, up until the latter half of the 1960s when they went downhill, when the players like Mantle and Maris were getting old. And, and, and by 1985, you could argue that it was both the Yankees and Mets town because both those teams were, were, were good, right. which is the basis for this book. And it was something I enjoyed because I, it usually both teams were never good at the same time. Right. You know, when I was growing up from 1969 to 73, when I was going to Yankee Stadium, the Mets were the better team. So by 1972, although I was a born Yankees fan, and I started rooting for the Mets also, uh, this was around time, the time the Mets brought Willie Mays back to New York, which was a good idea. Uh, I, I decided to say to myself, why can't the Mets be my favorite team in the National League and the Yankees be my favorite team in the American League? And so that's how I grew up after that. So even though this person hates the Mets, this person hates the Yankees, I can respect that. But I'm a New Yorker, and I enjoyed both teams. And, uh, and it was Yeah, it's interesting because... Uh, it may depend upon the age of somebody who's listening to this, but, and Chris is much younger than the, the two of us, uh, but I don't, I, I even think you're not, I think you're old enough to where the National League and American League actually do mean something. Mm -hmm. But I think of us, probably the, the, you know, your children, let's say, that age group, the National League and the American League, 
I don't even think people uh, from, a, uh, let's say, a child now growing up, it, it's almost meaningless. It's just it, a way to split teams up, that's all. Yeah, yeah. because they, they play each other every day anyway. So I agree with, with what you said, Tony, that going back in the street, New York was a National League town, uh, it could be argued, uh, because of the two teams. But I think at this point, unfortunately, I find uh, I find it sad. Frankly, I, to me, one of the great things is, as a matter of fact, the uh, the other day I was watching the Met game, and Gary Cohn, like, asked Keith, "Oh, what are you going to be doing on the All Star break? And where are you, where are you watching the All Star game?" And Keith said something to the effect of, uh, "You shouldn't ask me that." And then he then admitted he's not going to be watching the All Star game because it's not what it was. And that's kind of the old cynic, which I guess I am too, in a way. <laughs> Uh, but I think, and this will probably just get some people upset, but to, to me, it's so rare, which is what the crux of your book is and why I think it was, uh, was brilliant to focus in on that 1985 year, because both teams, both teams were, were, it's very rare to have both the Mets and the Yankees good at the, in the same time. It's happened so few times. I think when both teams are equal at, at the same level, basically, and that year they were I mean, you couldn't be more equal by their final record. Uh, I think New York's a little bit more of a Met town than a Yankee town when both teams are equal. But there's no right answer to this, obviously, but just a feeling. You mentioned the All-Star game not being what it was, according to Keith Hernandez. He has a good point. Uh, when I was a kid growing up, I loved watching the All-Star game, and especially when it met to the Yankees were on the teams. Uh, in 2013, when they had the All-Star game here at City Field, um, Dwayne Reed, uh, had a contest, a trivia contest, for All-Star Game tickets. I entered and won. I was only one of two people to win the contest. What it was, was the contest? Questions. It was ten questions based on New York baseball, and they were very difficult. It had nothing to do with, uh, you know, your knowledge of uh, toothpaste and toilet paper? No. It was, it was New York baseball, either Mets and Yankees. How well did you know about the Mets and Yankees? Well, I, well, I was the third person in the contest. It was a long line of people. It was there all day. And so when I got all 10 answers right, one of the representatives, it was really difficult. One of the representatives, Dwayne Reed, said, wow, this guy got all 10. So they gave me a choice of all-star game tickets, futures tickets, or celebrity softball game tickets. I said, that's right. Give me the all-star game tickets, which are worth a lot. Um, the tickets were 400, those two seats, field level, right field. The tickets were $400 each. I needed the money at the time. And I promised to Dwayne Reed that I would go to the game. That was my initial intention. I was going to invite someone else. I didn't know who at the time. But then I got to thinking, you know, I need the money. And the All-Star game is not what it was. It's, it, it doesn't live up to the hype anymore. So what I did was I sold the tickets at the Fan Fest at the Javits Center for $800. I didn't scalp them. I said, what I'll do is I'll get the money that the tickets are worth. Uh, I don't scout. I wouldn't do that. Although I could have gone to uh, StubHub and gotten twice as much or whatever for those tickets. They were in big demand. So I, I sold them for $800 and uh, I wasn't sorry about it because I knew the game would probably turn out to be a dog and certainly that's what happened. The National League was shut out in their own ballpark, 3 nothing. And the only thing I really wanted to see at that game was Tom Seaver throwing out the first ball. And I got to do that the next day on YouTube. Right. So that's, that's my experience. Well, if the feds are, uh, are looking for Tony for uh, scalping tickets, <laughs> I, I don't have his contact. Wait a minute. I I've saw, never seen the guy. No, before. I sold them at face value. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, anyway, it was, it, it's kind of an, an aside, but it just, uh, I, sometimes I think uh, it's a generational thing. When, I, when I'm talking to people and they're young and you start talking about the National League, the American League, they, they look at you like, you know, what are you talking about, National yeah. League, American League? Yeah. Uh, you're, you're, how old are you, Chris, if you don't mind? 38. 38, and your, your children are five? Five and eight. Five and eight. When you talk to your children, do they have any? Do they care at all about National League, American League, or they? Or it doesn't mean anything. They're, I mean, they're just learning sort of how baseball works and everything like that. All I know is that Dad is a Yankees fan, so they're, they're already on. Fans. They're already on the side of the Yankees. <laughs> well, yeah. that's how it should. be. Yeah, but I mean, I was I was watching the home run derby with my youngest, uh, who really enjoys. She's, I mean, she's five, so she's just getting an understanding of everything about the game, but she just enjoys sort of watching things as they happen. And, you know, if I go, ooh, wow, that was a long home run by Vlad Jr., she, you know, ooh, wow. And she doesn't quite understand. But I, I think it's a valid point in that the game has become, even, even with the, the gimmicky whoever wins wins the World Series, World Series, which I just, I never agreed with, but... It's, it's become less and less about the two leagues and it's more about the individual players and marketing the individual players, which I can understand. Um, but I think most people tune in now for that. Right? They'll tune in to see Mike Trapp play. They'll tune in to see whomever might be playing in their last All-Star game uh, versus tuning in to see the AL or the NL with you know, one or the other. Right. Tony, Chris just mentioned his age. I'll, I'll mention to the listeners, I'm 57 years old. I was born hours before the Mets won their first game. The Mets lost their first nine games in 1962. They lost on April 22nd. I was born uh, during the day. I was born that evening. And the Mets won the next after, afternoon. Jay Hook got the win. And I always tell people, the Mets were waiting for me to be born first before they won their first game. <laughs> Hopefully you don't remember that in real time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's possible. Uh, that's great. Uh, well, the book, I really enjoyed this, and I think uh, certainly any New York, forget about National League, American League, Met fan, Yankee fan, I think any New York fan, uh, certainly any Mets or Yankee fan will enjoy this, but I think even more than that, uh, it just brought back a lot of memories throughout the book. Uh, we were discussing this a little bit. It was 1985. Personally, I was working uh, in politics at the time. Uh, and I was working on Mayor Koch's third, it was his third term for mayor. Was just, he, he won in 77 for the first time, 81, he was reelected. 85 was the next reelection. And just like the Mets set attendance records in 85, New York attendance record, Mayor Koch set uh, voting records at that point. He won uh, close to 80% of the vote. I, I believe it was 78% of the vote in 1985 as, uh, in his third term. And uh, it, it never happened before, and it's never happened since. I, I, I mean, I shouldn't say it will never happen again, but it doesn't look like mm. politics is like that now. And uh, so it just brought back a lot of memories for me about that time in New York as, as well. And uh, I just want to read something that uh, Chris wrote that I thought really got to the heart of this. And by the way, for, for people listening, uh, if you've heard any uh, snoring in the background, nobody fell asleep. Uh, that's, that's my dog, Sinatra, a little French bulldog. He's closing in on 12. And uh, 
he sleeps through most things, so Chris, don't take any of this no, personally. No offense whatsoever. He, he slept whatsoever. through yeah, any, pretty much right. anything for the last 12 years. <laughs> uh, so for anyone listening, nobody fell asleep, don't worry. And the, the book is fantastic. Again, the name of the book is Doc, Donnie, the Kid, and Billy Brawl, How the 1985 Mets and Yankees Fought for New York's Baseball Soul, published by Nebraska Press, written by Chris Donnelly. I also just want to thank our sponsors again, Sauce Pizzeria and St. Mark's Wine and Liquor, and our special roundtable guest, uh, my friend and the soul of New York, Tony Danera, the author of a terrific memoir, Joining Arnold, Rise of the Girly Man, and you'll see the link to, for both of these books, where you can purchase these books. But I just want to close with the words of uh, Chris's own words from the book. As both teams headed into spring training in 1985, the Yankees, successful for so many years, were on their way down. The Mets, disgraceful for so many years, were on their way up. 1985 is where they intersected, and it would be one of the greatest baseball seasons in New York history. Read the book. You're going to enjoy it. Thank you very much, Chris and Tony. Thanks, Jack. Thank you. Appreciate it.